I'm Matt Miller of the Ditch That Textbook Podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of the individual hosts. Make sure you check out all the other great educational podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here, and today I'm talking with Michelle McPhee. She's a five-time Emmy-nominated investigative journalist. She's an award-winning author of seven true crime titles. She's written for Newsweek, as well as she's been a contributor for Boston and Los Angeles magazines and screenwriter for HBO and Showtime. Today, she was talking at the Georgia Association of Secondary School Principals Fall Conference about Operation Mean Streets, an inside look at how MS-13, the most dangerous gang in the world, is tracking young immigrant students and targeting them for recruitment, often under duress. She's sharing that. It comes out in 2020, along with a cable show. And we uh, also got into her more recent book, Maximum Harm. A lot to learn today, very important topic. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and share. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Michelle McPhee is a veteran investigative journalist. She is the best-selling author of six true crime novels, most recently Maximum Harm, and she's got a new one coming out called Operation Mean Streets, an inside look at how MS-13, the most dangerous gang in the world, is tracking young immigrant students and targeting them for recruitment, often under duress. Got a chance to hear her speak today at the uh, Fall GSSP conference in uh, Savannah, Georgia. And uh, what uh, she's a, you know, she's now based out of L.A., and uh, she's transitioning from uh, writing for news to uh, TV. Yes, yeah, and, that's uh, great. And uh, so uh, where she used to call Boston home, she now calls LA home. Michelle, welcome to the show today. Appreciate well, it. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Steve. Today I got to hear you speak. You're talking to uh, all these principals from uh, the state of Georgia. And I think I might have horrified most of them. But <laughs> it's an interesting thing, yes, because you're talking about a pretty serious thing that a lot of the the, the news media is kind of glossing over and there are you know, political entities that are kind of pushing it aside. And that's that's, you know, the extent that gangs are in our uh, in our schools or in, in our communities that are causing some issues. And so what I'd like to do is first, let's talk a little bit before we go there. Let's talk a little bit about uh, you want to share a little bit of, with us about uh, uh, Maximum Harm. Let's talk about your this other book first. Sure. I, so Maximum Harm is going to be a documentary directed by Charles Ferguson, who um, won an Oscar for Inside Job. And it's, and it's very validating to have somebody at that level of investigative journalism take seriously the years and years of research I put into Maximum Harm. Uh, essentially, you know, I have discovered that Tamlins and I have the older brother uh, the older of the two that marched down Boylston Street and detonated two pressure cooker bombs within 12 seconds of each other on the infamous block of Boylston Street and my hometown city of Boston at this iconic 117th running of the Boston Marathon. And this was a horrible scene. I had been on the ground for 9-11. I had seen, you know, horrific aftermath of 9-11, but nothing was like the Boston Marathon, because they were puzzle pieces of body parts, and I wanted to know how this happened to my city. Uh, I appreciate you uh, writing a story about this. I remember watching, I was watching in 
um, on TV when all of this uh, transpired and they're trying to figure out what's going on and then everything to the hunt. Um, as and, and the law enforcement should absolutely be applauded, and I do applaud them in my book, for the five-day manhunt looking for these two dirtbags that detonated bombs that killed a little boy and two young women and left 17 people amputees and you know injured and maimed hundreds of others. Uh, but really, there were a lot of unanswered questions that I think needed to be looked into. It was fantastic that we lined the streets and we, we applauded when we got Jahar Zanayev off that boat where he had been hiding, writing anti-American screeds on the side of this boat. Um, nobody was sorry that the older brother had died in the firefight with Watertown police and run over by his own brother, which was the actual cause of his death. Uh, so case closed. We got the two guys who did it. And let's celebrate the heroic law enforcement that tracked them down and, and case closed. But that's not really the case. It turned out that Tamlins and I have the older brother had a long history with federal law enforcement. His uncle helped the entire Zanaya family get into the country and he was married into the family of a high-ranking CIA official, Graham Fuller. And Graham Fuller helped the entire family get into the country via Ankara, Turkey, which is where he was the CIA station chief. So you start looking at those facts, and you learn that the FSB warned us that Tamalins and I was going to do harm to America, and they had planned to go to Russia and join the jihad. He did exactly that. Um, we know that he was able to travel while on two terror watch lists, and he got back into the country without a problem. And when he got back into the country, after a number of high-level terror targets that he had been affiliated with and seen with were tracked and killed by counterterrorism, Nobody's crying over those losses either, but he was on the fast track to citizenship in Boston. And that's where a lot of the unanswered questions remain. How did a guy who's unemployed, who, you know, the ACLU has sued on behalf of countless Muslims that couldn't get citizenship despite being sponsored by big companies, having college degrees. This was a guy who had been on welfare since the beginning he got, from the time he got into Massachusetts until the day he died. His death certificate literally reads, never worked. Wow. <laughs> so how did, how did a guy like this manage to go to Russia for all this time? And so if you read Maximum Harm, there are some, you know, Lincolns. We, we connect some dots and we do it with paperwork and court documentation and transcript trials and I had a lot of help from local law enforcement who was upset at the way that the case was handled. But the biggest question of all, and I wrote a Newsweek cover piece on this, is the government says the Zanai brothers did not build the bombs. The obvious question is then who did? And there is a guy that was connected to MIT, um, which is of course where they had murdered MIT police officer Sean Collier. Um, and that guy was found to have uh, an arsenal of bomb-making equipment at his mother's home in Topsfield, Massachusetts, including components to the Marathon bombs. Uh, local law enforcement arrested him in Topsfield, Massachusetts. The FBI breezed in, took over the case, and this guy disappeared and was never charged. Wow, so we have no clue. Basically, what you found is that he's disappeared. Well, we know where he is now. He was The FBI put him into a mental institution, and... Um, he was there until the conclusion of the Zanayev case, but a lot of local law enforcement, bomb squad officials in Massachusetts want to know why he was never charged with the equipment that he had in his house that were very close matches to the Boston Marathon bombs, which the government said the brothers didn't build. So obviously there are more people connected to this case, which is the most dangerous element that we researched and developed in maximum harm. But more importantly, I think that we deserve the truth. 
how much did the FBI know? How did this guy get in and out of the country on two terror watch lists? Why was he on the fast track to citizenship when he wasn't eligible for it right after his trip to Russia, which was very mysterious? So for me, it wasn't about trying to finger point a blame. It's about getting to the truth so that it doesn't happen again. You know, I was there on 9-11. I was there on April 15th, 2013, Patriots Day in Boston, my hometown. I had been on the scene of two terror attacks now. And I think that we continually make the same mistakes and we don't talk about the accountability, the lack of accountability in the intelligence community. And it's gonna happen again if we don't face facts, find truths, and hold people accountable. Awesome, so, so why should uh, somebody read Maximum Harm? Because I think you will be alarmed on how much you didn't know about the Boston Marathon. Yes, it's true, two jihadi brothers walked down Boylston Street, murdered a little boy, two young women, they sent cops on a five-day manhunt. But all I know is, Steve, if you sat down and did this podcast with me and you did an interview with me today, I'm pretty sure if I set off a bomb on the riverfront of Savannah in a year, you would recognize me. We're expected to believe that there was a team of FBI officials that went to interview Tamlins and I have multiple times and no one recognized him when he emerged as suspect black hat. It's absurd. That's sad. So you start from that premise and move forward and there's something else at play. Uh, you may recall that Tamlins and I have, has now been implicated, I broke the story for ABC News, on the 10 year anniversary of September 11th, there were three of his friends, mixed martial arts fighters who were slaughtered. They had their throats slashed, the two Jewish victims were sexually mutilated. Um, they didn't take any of the money or the drugs that were in the apartment, so it wasn't a robbery. And we now know for a fact, and I outline this in the book, that Tamlins and I have committed that murder and there were officials that hid that fact from the families and never arrested him or even questioned him. Wow. The, uh, so, so if he had been arrested for that triple murder, the Boston Marathon bombing would never have happened. Right. My gosh. The, uh, so you know, if somebody wants to pick up a copy of Maximum Harm, where they can get it at bookstores, Amazon.com. Amazon is a good place to get it because they buy in bulk, so it's cheaper. Nice. Yeah, you nice. can save bucks. I told even the uh, attendees of today's conference were probably better off buying it and then bringing it for me to sign. All right, so Michelle, we let's focus a little bit on why, why you were here today. We, you were here with uh, the high school principals from uh, and secondary principals, I think there's middle school and high school here, as well as uh, probably in a, a assortment of other assistants, superintendents, and different type of administrative positions here for the state of Georgia. And, and uh, what you were here to talk about was Operation Mean Streets, an inside look at how MS-13, the most dangerous gang in the world, is tracking young immigrant students and targeting them for recruitment, often under duress. First of all, what led you to, to start talk? What, what made you go and look at uh, put, you know, producing a book about uh, MS-13? Well, at the time, I was living in Boston, and I live in East Boston, which has always been an immigrant neighborhood. It was the Ellis Island of Boston back in the day. We had something called the Golden Steps, and immigrants would climb off a boat in, into East Boston and go up the Golden Steps, and they had arrived. And so I come from a family of immigrants, and you know, Italians and, Ameri and Irish, and I love East Boston. But East Boston began to change, because new immigrants moved in, Central Americans, um, and a lot of people moved out, but I stayed because I really love the community. And MS-13 has been ravishing my neighborhood now for decades. And it started with a story that I had covered um, in the mid-1990s. There, there was a, a concerted effort to create an East Coast MS-13 program. So there were a group of guys, and I know the detectives, I'll never forget the day, that all of a sudden they see what looks like Los Angeles gang members hanging around in East Boston and Chelsea, Massachusetts. Um, they had 
devil's horns tattooed on their bodies. They were wearing blue and white. Um, they had rosary beads that were blue and white. They were wearing Nike Cortez sneakers that were designed by a gang member with a pointed toe so that they could stick it in the fence and climb over. Um, so yes, yeah, so the uh, MS-13 was, was getting a little bit of a stronghold. And what they would do, and this is why they're able to operate without people paying too much attention to them, is because they only victimize other Central American immigrants. So these are people who are largely living in the shadows. They're living in the cracks of society. And it's a fact-filled life in Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala that MS-13 is probably the most dangerous American export since the atomic bomb because it was a gang that was created in Los Angeles, California and was exported. When, we st when the 1994 crime bill happened, we started to export a lot of these convicted gang members back to El Salvador and they just ran roughshod. It was already a government reeling from a civil war. They just were able to entrench themselves and they still run the country to this day. And it's a beautiful, especially El Salvador, it's a beautiful country. Surfers will tell you it's the most incredible surfing in the world, but it's too dangerous. It's quite literally the murder capital of the world. So there have been, historically, um, unaccompanied alien children under the Obama administration and as part of a humanitarian effort he gave immediate asylum to some of these UACs, they call them, unaccompanied alien children. And so these kids surrender at the border, and we've seen a lot of controversy about these children at the border, and I think that this, the whole story is not being told. Some of, these are, some of these people are children that are absolutely fleeing horrific situations. Some of them are gang members that are intentionally coming to the United States to victimize the unaccompanied alien children who are flooding into our country. So as the numbers of unaccompanied alien children increased, MS-13 saw an opportunity to have new blood, new recruits, expand their turf. And there is right now a, a very deliberate effort to expand MS-13 up and down the East Coast. They call it the East Coast Program. And it's quite like the mafia, where there are families. And the cliques pay into the family, and the family's the East Coast. And the money is used to pay for guns and uh, weapons for the leadership, which is called La Ramfla. It's operated out of a prison in El Salvador, completely controlled by MS-13. Those are the guys that make all of the decisions, who lives, who dies, who's it going to be a recruiter. And they have sent people into high schools all over the East Coast with one mission, and that is to target and recruit new members. And their mission is not to sell drugs or make money. Their mission is to kill their enemy. This one enemy is the 18th Street Gang, which is also made up of Central Americans. 18th Street is more entrenched in American life. You know, they've been here longer. They speak English. MS-13 has declared the 18s their mortal enemy, and they exist solely to kill the rival gang members. Wow. And, and right there, part of what you just talked about is the message that uh, why educators need to pay attention to what's going on in and around them. And uh, there's every um, from the can, can we kind of talk about that just a little bit about uh, uh, why this is, you know, they shouldn't tune this story out. This is not something, you know, they've got to take a look at what's going on in their schools. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, because it's happening in a lot of schools. There are schools that are completely under siege. We know in Brentwood, you saw two young women that were murdered by MS-13. The parents sued the school system, saying that they allowed an atmosphere that let MS-13 take over their school. Uh, and we, we've seen it in Virginia. We have seen it in Massachusetts. We have seen it in D.C. We have seen it in Maryland. And most recently, there was a big federal takedown of a gang in a very wealthy community of California in Pasadena. 
And at a public school, you had a clique of MS-13 members who cut the heart out of a student who didn't want to join. They, he resisted their demands that he join the gang. They used every tactic that they use for other kids to get intimidated or extorted into the gang by threatening a family member. While this kid didn't have any family left, they had already been killed by the gangs. He was adamant he wasn't joining the gangs. So they literally barbarically killed him in the National Forest in California and cut his heart out. Wow. A high school student. Um, six East Boston high school students were murdered in a matter of two years by fellow students. It's not even a national headline, it's not a local headline. You know, these are invisible people. And one of the things that really stuck out at me when I started to cover the trials were the perpetrators. When they um, had a chance to defend themselves and say, well, this is why I did it, so many of them said, I went to my school for help and no one would help me. I didn't want to join the gang and I went to my principal, I went to the school counselor, I went to the guidance counselor, and especially in Massachusetts, it's different than the politics in Georgia, obviously. But in Massachusetts, we have something known as sanctuary cities, which does, completely prohibits local law enforcement and school officials from cooperating with ICE, immigration officials, in any way. Uh, in fact, we had a Boston school commissioner, a superintendent of schools, who tried really hard to you know, protect. And that's, that's the irony of people who don't want to engage with ICE, is that we are not protecting the kids who truly want nothing to do with the gangs, who are also immigrants. So to say we have to, we're going to pretend this doesn't exist is to um, do a disservice to the kids who truly want to get away from the gangs and whose parents have given up everything to get the kids away from the gangs. These parents are paying anywhere from 3500 to 7000 to a coyote to get their kids away from the gangs. And then the very thing they're running from is waiting to greet them in their new American high schools. Wow. So your book is coming out when? Uh, in 2020. In 2020, so it's coming down the road. and uh, uh, It's going to be an HBO series called The Beast. Oh, excellent. So, and the series will come out after the book or before? Uh, probably after, yeah. Okay. It takes a long, I'm, I'm new in television, but it takes a long time to get this stuff off the, off the ground. The, uh, um, one of the things, as we get close to wrapping up, that I'd like to make sure that I get a chance is, what's something that you would want to make sure, what's a message you would like people to hear? Because um, my, my podcast is all about helping classroom teachers and building administrators. What's a message you'd like to leave them with? Well, it's interesting because a friend of mine is a teacher in Everett, which is one of the schools affected by MS-13 recruitment. And her husband is a cop. He's an Everett police officer. So he gave her all the telltale signs that the school administrators refused to talk about. Chicago Bulls hats, blue and white clothing for MS-13, chasing a kid down the street because he has a red shirt on. Doesn't mean the kid is 18th Street, but they believe he's 18th because he's wearing those clothing. Um, tattoos. If you have a student that has an MS-13 tattoo, that means he has absolutely killed because they're not allowed. Paros and Jaqueos who are under observation by the gang are not allowed to get tattoos unless they get permission from the leadership of La Ramfla, which is the leadership of MS-13. So if you have a kid with a tattoo, he's already a serial killer in your school. And what I would say is that you need to have true cooperation between your school safety personnel the cops, the school resource officers, and administrators to identify these kids, and not because you're trying to profile anybody, which is one of the allegations that were made in Massachusetts, that it was racial profiling. What they're trying to do is identify the recruiters, 
target them in a way to get them out of the schools so you can protect the kids who have no choice but to say, I'm going to be an 18th MS-13. You heard me tell the story today, and it it's a, haunts me that two best friends make the long journey with a coyote from Honduras, from their little village in Honduras. One of them's brother had been murdered already by 18th Street. They get here. Each of them forced into opposing gangs. Wilson Martinez is forced into 18th Street. Gasper is his young killer. He's forced into MS-13. They catfish Wilson Martinez using a fake uh, Facebook profile of a pretty girl. They lure him out of his house because he's afraid of MS-13. Um, and his friend is there as he is killed. Wow. And he is an unwilling participant in this mass murder, you know, this horrific machete murder of his close friend. This is uh, it's so important to, to listen to what, uh, you need to find out what's going on and pay attention you know, in, the, in the school. And that's what, uh, there's so many different signs that are there and uh, it's so important. Um, we've got, uh, um, looking forward to the book coming out. Looking, Thank you. And looking Thank forward you for to the sh show as well. Glad that you're here. Um, the, uh, um, just one last thing real quick. Any, anybody, you know, one of the things I like to ask my guests is, did you have a, uh, a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? Oh, and I'm if so, so glad you asked this. I had a principal oh, awesome. who I loved. His name was Joe Sullivan, Wakefield High School in Massachusetts. And it's funny because I had to, years later, he was very good to me. I was like, I was probably what principals call um, a good student, but incorrigible. Nice. So I was like a straight A student who got into trouble all the time. Gotcha. Right? Like I was constantly <laughs> in trouble, detention, you know, just awful. I was incor I really was incorrigible, but I got good grades so I could get away with it a little bit. Nice. And Joe Sullivan tried to curb some of the incorrigible and he was very good to me. Put he helped me a lot with, um, you know, I think people come from different family backgrounds and he was a guy that could recognize when he could step in and maybe make a difference. And I love Joe Sullivan. Fast forward, Joe Sullivan. I am now um, the host of my own radio show in Boston. I had my, I was the only female with a drive time show and I get a call from a teacher at Wakefield High saying, you love Joe Sullivan, because I've talked about him on my show, about how he helped nice. me out. He, he just got fired. And I said, what? Oh, how? Because his son had died in service to his country, and on Veterans Day, this is an appropriate story, and they had students that refused to say the Pledge of Allegiance. So he lectured these students. He didn't beat them with a ruler like the nuns would do. He lectured them about how his son died so they would have the right to decide whether or not to pledge their allegiance to the flag in class. And um, so Joe Sullivan lectured these kids about the American flag and parents said he bullied them into saying the Pledge of Allegiance and he got fired. And I went on a rampage and helped him get his job back. Wow, that's awesome that you got his job back for him. Yeah, but he didn't want it back after that. <laughs> I can imagine, I can imagine. Michelle, thank you so much. I thank you. wish you the best in your transition in LA and uh, going to uh, um, into the TV world. And, uh, Thanks and for having me. Look forward to having the, the book. Uh, everyone needs to pick up Maximum Harm as well as to look at Operation Mean Streets. Thank you very much. Teaching Learning Leading K 12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K 12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. 
Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.